And, uh, but one of, the, one of the anniversaries that we celebrated last Monday, uh, it, was, it was July 9th, 2013. Five years ago this past Monday, uh, many of you remember that uh, we were at a, a church league softball game, and Brother Mike, as we all called him affectionately, uh, that he, he had a heart attack. And that later on that night, uh, at the hospital, he went to be with Jesus. Very unexpectedly, very tragically for us, and, and many of us still to this day, uh, we, we still grieve about that. I mean, we, we're, we're still grieving over his loss. And, and, uh, and the fact is, though, is that some of you have come since then. You, you've never had an opportunity to meet Mike. And so I want to direct you to a place on our website, uh, fbcabbyville.net. You can still listen to over 175 messages that Mike preached. And especially, uh, we have a little page called the, the Brother Mike Whit Memorial page, um, where you can listen to the messages that he was preaching in, in May and June. And if you haven't done that, even recently, if you were here, and, but you haven't done that, you need to go listen to those messages, knowing what was coming. God was, God was using him to speak this truth over us, and it was like God said, okay, now you've heard this truth, I want you to live it. And we did. And, uh, and so we, uh, we, we, we celebrated uh, bittersweetly uh, that anniversary this past Monday. And um, I, I, want to, I want to use that as a jumping off point this morning for us because that's such a part of our, our story that hits us so hard even to this day as, as, as I think about it. It's starting to get emotional. And the fact is, is that we as Southerners and, and as, as Christians, we tend to be what I call politically stoic. Uh, politically stoic. That is where you, uh, you kind of suppress emotions because you don't want people to think wrongly about you around you. And I want to tell you today that that is, uh, uh, oh, and I, I had this picture of him, because Mike was the only guy that could rock a, uh, a, a D-Now t-shirt over a polo with slacks and ride a mechanical bull. That was just, that was just him. And so, and so uh, that's, that's what he's on. That was that's a mechanical bull at one of our youth events. And so anyway, um, but the fact is, is that uh, in those days, if you remember very clearly, it was like the... The, the, the reality of the tragedy that we were experiencing made us not care about what people thought. We were, we were emotional. We were, we, were, we were broken. And maybe you, like me, expressed many things around that time that, uh, that were very, I'm going to teach you a new word today, very, very cathartic, okay? Uh, everybody say the word catharsis. Catharsis. Yeah, it's just kind of a scary word. You're like, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, catharsis is the is the uh, relieving of emotional tension. Things that, things that have remained uh, unexpressed catharsis or a cathartic experience is where you express them. And you really don't, you know, once again, you don't care about the, the consequences, but you recognize that holding these, these emotions in would be unhealthy. And so I still remember some of the cathartic experiences that we had after Brother Mike passed away. Many of you remember the, the softball team that we were playing at the time, First Baptist Headland, they actually provided a dinner for us, and we all gathered around, and we talked about stories, and we laughed uh, uh, about things, that, uh, about personality characteristics that Mike had. We rejoiced that God had given him the time that we, that we had with him, and we, just, we truly did celebrate that night. Uh, and that was, that was, a, that was a very uh, enriching and relieved a lot of emotional tension. But then I remember a story a couple weeks after that that Elizabeth was doing like she would do and she'd come babysit for, for Mandy and I while we go on a date and, um, and Lily 
who was, uh, who was much younger at the time, was only about three or four years old, she actually said uh, to Elizabeth, she said, she said, I really miss Brother Mike. And, and we, we just immediately started apologizing to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth said, no, no. She said, don't, don't apologize. She said, the fact that he's on her mind makes me feel better because I know he's not forgotten. And it was that kind of, it, 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 I'll be honest, and I've, I've told Elizabeth this, like it totally reshaped my perspective about how we deal with emotional tragedy, about how we deal with death. That we, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want to suppress those things, but instead we want to express them because expressing them is deeply rooted in what it means to walk through this life in this broken world. And as we think about that, I want to ask you, I asked you last week, what makes you laugh, what makes you cry? When's the last time that you had one of those seasons in your life where you just cried out to the Lord? Maybe you were on your face, or maybe you, you were on your knees, and you, you wept, or you wailed, or you moaned, or you sobbed about something that was going on. For many of you, it may be very recent. For some of you, you may think, I, I don't, that's not me, I don't do that. I want to tell you, today we're going to deal with one of those books in the Bible that I think God put there to let us know that that is not only uh, a right thing to do in many circumstances, but that that is the most godly thing that you can do in many circumstances. I mean, the fact that God put a book in the Bible called Lamentations, the root word being to lament, to cry out, to grieve, to wail, to protest, to voice confusion shows us that God does not want us to be politically stoic people. That these kind of laments have a place in the life of godly men and women who are seeking that biblically balanced life. And so let's dive in and see what the Lord has for us today in the book of Lamentations, a short five-chapter book. And I want to tell you, it is a work of art. And so let's just let's have a little experiment here. I know you've got your Bible open, okay? So I want you to tell me how many verses are in the following chapters. How many verses are in chapter 1 of Lamentations? 22. Okay, how many verses are in chapter 2 of Lamentations? 22. How many verses are in chapter 3 of Lamentations? What was that? 66. 66 divided by uh, 3 is what? 22. Okay, how, what about chapter 4? 22. Chapter 5? Hey, okay, so... We think, okay, we're not Nicolas Cage and National Treasure, but we think we might see a code here, right? We think we might see some kind of structure that should, should make us aware of something that's going on. How many people know how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. That's right. That's right. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and chapters 1, 2, and 4 of, uh, of Lamentations for each lament or each line, it's a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first several letters, I, I don't honestly, sadly from seminary, I don't remember the whole Hebrew alphabet, uh, but Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet, that's the first four, okay? Uh, I, I have officially spoken in tongues in the pulpit of First Baptist Church. Okay, so... Um, some of you looked at me like that. But, uh, but no, th those are the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, each lament or each line of these chapters is like an acrostic. It's like an alphabet poem. And Lamentations is all about suffering. And so what this leads us to conclude is the fact that Lamentations is an exploration of suffering from A to Z. 
At this time in Israel's history, the prophet Jeremiah, who's considered to be the author of Lamentations because he was known as the weeping prophet, we saw that last week, it kind of continues in his tone. It's around the same uh, time period. And we say that Jeremiah is exploring the reality of suffering, the reality of God's uh, heavy hand of correction from A to Z. And so chapters 1 and 2 and 4 follow this acrostic pattern. Chapter 5 kind of breaks from it. It's still got 22 verses, but it serves as kind of a communal prayer. Crying out to the Lord was probably something that they used in worship. And so this concept of lamentation, it's not really unique to this book. We've, we've seen when we went through the book of Psalms that Psalm 10, 63, 69, 74, and 79 are examples of these psalms of lament. And we know the Psalms were Israel's book of corporate worship. So they, they had these, I mean, we don't, I mean, every Sunday I call our time together a time of worship and celebration. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that it would be just as appropriate, instead of worship and celebration, in the right context, it would be just as appropriate for us to come together and have a corporate time of, of lament. Which is kind of what a funeral is, and to some degree. I mean, yes, we want to grieve with hope, but especially uh, a, a very unexpected funerals like we've experienced often here at this church, it is this corporate time of lament. Of conf- I mean, there, there have been funerals here where there was utter pain that you could almost cut with a knife. There was confusion. And so these things, while they may make us uncomfortable, they are part of life lived in a broken world. And so, just as, uh, basically, the, well, the purpose of this book is to be a memorial to the pain and confusion about the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And it was written about 587 B.C., somewhere around there, because that's when the Babylonians invaded Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple and took away the people into exile. And so Jeremiah is lamenting this destruction But the question of why is never really asked, because it's known. Jeremiah was a prophet. He knew that for 500 years the Lord had been slow to anger, and that even though Israel had committed idolatry after idolatry after idolatry, even to the point of child sacrifice, like we saw last week in the book of Jeremiah, even though Israel had had been uh, committing these sins for years and years and years, the fact of the matter is, is that God delayed His wrath. God even delivered southern Israel, if you remember, from the Assyrians who conquered northern Israel. He delivered uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom under the leadership of King Hezekiah. He delivered them from the Assyrian siege. But then years later, after more calls to repentance by prophets in southern Israel, God says, enough is enough. And so these Babylonian invaders came into Jerusalem. They conquered it. They killed many people, and they took away many prisoners. And the response of Lamentations is a, it's a protest. It's, it's meant to vent anger and dismay over the ruin that brought about uh, the destruction of Israel because of the people's sin and selfishness and to voice this confusion. And so let's take a few minutes and look at each chapter in greater detail now that we know the context of why it was written. And so we'll call this just wrath and brokenness. And the fact is, is that chapter one focuses on the... Uh, Chapter 1 focuses on the... Let me go back to it. There we go. Chapter 1 focuses on uh, Lady Zion. Look at verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, who like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. 
She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. And so chapter 1 focuses on grief and shame as Israel is uh, kind of imagined as a widow, uh, a woman who has nobody there for her. Look at verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you? This is like she, Lady Israel, the widow Israel is speaking. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all day long. Now skip down to verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have all gone into captivity. And so chapter 1 imagines Israel as a widow who sits and cries in the street. But then you move to chapter 2. And chapter 2 focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem as a consequence for Israel's sin. Look at verse 5 of Lamentations chapter 2. The Lord has become like an enemy. And we, we, we like to think of soft, cuddly pictures of God. We love Zephaniah. The Lord will rejoice over you with loud singing. He'll dance over you. We love pictures like that. But Lamentations doesn't offer us pictures of God like that. Instead, verse 5, he's become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like, like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. Talking about the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation he has spurned king and priest. Remember the kings and the priests were the ones who had sold out the Lord. And they were following these pagan uh, religious practices. Look at verse 7. The Lord has scorned his altar. Now remember, this is Babylon who's doing this. But who is Jeremiah ascribing this action of destruction? It's the Lord who has sent this. This is, Jeremiah's not questioning why this is happening. He's saying, we have sinned. We've, we've sowed the seeds of our own destruction. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. In many ways, we have brought this on ourselves. And so it says in verse 8, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused the rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Skip down to verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. Tonight, we're going to gather back together at 5 o'clock and have an evening worship service. We're going to study through the shortest book of the Bible, Obadiah, right? Just 21 verses. And in those 21 verses, Obadiah cries out. In this season of Israel's history, he cries out against Edom. And we'll, we'll talk about who the Edomites are. But they lived on a mountain. And they looked down upon Jerusalem. And not only did they look down upon Jerusalem geographically, they looked down upon Jerusalem, Jerusalem and their attitude of pride as well. And one of the things we're going to see tonight is that the Edomites, they rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem. And not only did they rejoice, they actually participated in it. 
that as Israelites were fleeing from the, the Babylonian conquerors, that the Edomites cut them off at the pass and looted them and took some of them prisoner and killed some of them as well. And so this surrounding nation joined with Babylon, and the, the, sad, the, the reason Obadiah is confronting them is because the Edomites were descendants of Esau, which was, that was the grandson of Abraham. And so the Edomites and the Israelites are kind of like, they're kind of like family. And so one part of the family goes and devours another part of the family, and Obadiah speaks out against them. That's what we're going to see tonight. That's what one of the things that Jeremiah is talking about here in Lamentations. Look at verse 17. The Lord has done, though, what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and, and, and exalted the might of your foes. And then skip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is another depiction of the fall of Jerusalem. There was a two-year siege against it by, by the Babylonian armies. And, this, uh, and Jeremiah talks about the pain of seeing the people of Israel dispersed. Look at verse 15 of, of Lamentations chapter 4. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. That was, the, that was the, the call of lepers, people who were the outcast of society. It says, like, like lepers, the Israelites, they became fugitives and wanderers. And people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. And so God's purpose of getting, one of the, one of the things that we'll, we'll see as we continue on, because this is not the final picture that we'll see, but Genesis chapter 12, remember what the whole purpose of God blessing Abraham was? Was so that he could be a blessing to the nations, and so Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. But the fact is that Israel, in their idolatry, had, be, had become the kind of people who was a curse upon the nations. They were just blending in with the nations. And so what are we going to see in the book of Daniel that we'll study through next Sunday morning? We're going to see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in these very horrible circumstances in these nations. And what are they doing? They're being a blessing. And so God is having His way. And He is taking Israel from being just walled off on their own and being a curse on the nations, to taking them and getting them out of their comfort zone, essentially, and making them a blessing to the nations, which was his whole purpose from the very beginning. And then chapter 5. Chapter 5 is another 22 verses that breaks from the acrostic structure to be a communal prayer for God and His mercy. It explores the, the different ways that the people of Israel have been devastated. Women and princes and young men and old men. Look at verse 19, though, of chapter 5. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless... This is how the book ends. Unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us. You see here at the very end of the book of Lamentations, there's this cry for hope, unless, unless... You're done with us. Now, we, you notice we skipped over chapter 3, which is the most familiar passage in Lamentations, right? And so the reason we skipped over chapter 3 is because chapter 3 is the centerpiece. Uh, Hebrew poetry works like this. You have, in this instance, you have 
one chapter, and then you have two chapters, and then you have three chapters, and they kind of stair-step, right? And then you have a fourth chapter and a fifth chapter that kind of mimic the first two chapters. And the reason that it does that is because it puts chapter three intentionally in the middle to say, this is the most important thing that we could say. And so that's why we're saving the best for last, so to speak, and looking at Lamentations chapter 3, which I'll call the centerpiece of Lamentations. It's no accident that it is in the middle, like we've said. Out of 66 verses, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each letter gets three different verses to explain the situation with greater clarity. And one of the things that Hebrew scholars tell us is that this chapter borrows language from the laments of Job. Oh, excuse me, from the laments of Job, from the lament psalms, and even the songs of the suffering servant found in Isaiah to bring together this unified vision of how uh, believers, how Jewish people in that day, and now how Christians in our day, how we should biblically lament. And so that's why we're going to take some time and look at it. So let, I'm going to read, actually, you can follow along with me, the first 18 verses to show you the depth of of the lamentation here in Jeremiah. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer, and He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Here's another picture not to put your kids to bed with at night of God. Verse 10, He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all the day long. He has filled me with bitterness and sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Listen, folks, you may be uncomfortable with expressing what you're feeling on the inside to God, but let the first 18 chapters of Lamentations, or the first 18 verses of Lamentations 3 show you that God's not scared of your doubts. God's not scared of your questions. God, not, God is not scared of your emotions. In fact, remember what we, what we compared doubt to the last time we dealt with this serious issue in the book of Habakkuk. We said doubt is like a foot poised to take a step. It can either take a step forward in faith or take a step backward in unbelief. But the fact of the matter is, is that as, uh, as our new Southern Baptist Convention president says, J.D. Greer, he says real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. You may be scared of your doubts, but God is actually giving you an opportunity in dealing with your doubt to take a step forward in real faith because real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. Until you have deep questions and deep pain, you will probably not have a deep experience of God. And what he goes on to say, so God lets you have some of these so that you can encounter a God whose love and wisdom and glory are deeper than the pain. 
And isn't that what we've experienced? Isn't that what we experienced five years ago? That the Lord took us deeper, maybe, than many of us had ever been before into the valley of the shadow of death to show us that He is sufficient in the valley of the shadow of death. And if He is sufficient there, where else could He, could he struggle to be sufficient? It, it, there's, there's no place, no season of your life, no physical disability, no, no relational struggle that you could ever face where Jesus is not sufficient for you. And that's exactly where the, where the author, where Jeremiah goes. Because like so many of the doubters of the Old Testament, Jeremiah teaches us how to endure. Look at verse 20 of Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 20 of, of, uh, of, Jer- of Lamentations chapter 3. He said, My soul continually re- remembers it, my, my afflictions, and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will trust in Him. You see, what He's saying here to us, the way that we biblically endure, the way that we find biblical endurance... J.D. Gray puts it again this way. He says, you can't control what you remember, but you can choose what you call to mind. Memories are tough, aren't they? Keep you awake at night. We struggle with the reality of what we've lived through. You can't help the memories that fly through your head, but you can control, and you are called to control, what you actually bring back out of your mind. And this is why the Lord calls us to store His promises in our heart. Not just so that we can not sin against Him in some external moral failure, but so that we cannot sin against Him in the area of freezing fear and unbelief and doubt. You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, that's another one that you should probably read if you struggle with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that there is a sense in which what the Scriptures do is to teach us how to talk to ourselves. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. I love that I I can just keep preaching because y'all aren't going anywhere. Um, (laughs) Nobody wants to go outside right now. Um, Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion. Do you know what that language harkens back to? It harkens back to the book of Joshua where the people of Israel entered into the promised land, and they divided up portions of land according to the tribe. And so Jeremiah is saying, I have no more portion because the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they've taken it all. But the portion that I still have is the Lord. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. When you call to mind the sufficiency of the Lord, the satisfaction of the Lord, the character of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the covenant that God has made, because that's the, the name that, God, that, that Jeremiah uses there, Yahweh. Yahweh is my portion. When you call to mind the covenant through Christ that He has called you into, it won't deliver you from the season that you're in, but it will help you endure it. And can I give you a perfect example of why this matters? Many people were shocked a couple months ago, or last month actually, when Anthony Bourdain took his own life. 
Anthony Bourdain, especially uh, if you're a dude, Anthony Bourdain seemed to have like the perfect life, right? Like you get to travel around the world and eat cool stuff. I mean, it's, uh, it just kind of seems like one of, the, one of the coolest jobs that you can have. And yet, in the aftermath of, of, uh, of him taking his own life, the fact is, is that many people went back and looked at what he was saying, and, and they saw struggle there. They saw doubt there. They saw depression there. They saw anxiety there. They saw guilt and regret there. And I want to read you, uh, well, actually, just in, in reading uh, about him this past week, I learned that he had a tattoo on his arm. It was a, he had a lot of tattoos, as you can see in the picture, but he had a, a tattoo in his arm that was written in ancient Greek. Anybody know what it said? It said, oh, there we go. Um, it said, I can be certain of nothing. Let me say that again. I am, it, it, he, had a, he had a tattoo written in Greek on his arm that said, I am certain of nothing. I'm certain of nothing. He also wrote this. He said, life is complicated. It's filled with nuance. It's unsatisfying. If I believe in anything, it is doubt. The root cause of all life's problems is looking for a simple answer. Anthony Bourdain should have read Ecclesiastes, should have read Habakkuk, should have read the book of Lamentations because he would have found a friend. But the fact is, is that as an active Buddhist, his worldview kept him from seeing the Bible as authoritative. Remember, doubt is a, is a foot poised to take a step. And sadly, this life that we do grieve, anybody who takes their own life, we, we grieve the, the question marks left in, in the aftermath of that suicide. But this is what doubt rooted in atheism looks like. This is where our culture is. This is why suicide rates are skyrocketing in our culture. It's because everybody has doubt. Christians don't need to act like they don't have doubt. Everybody has doubt. But it's what you call to mind when that doubt comes that defines where your faith really is. Anthony Bourdain did not have faith in God. He didn't have a God who had spoken to us fully and finally in Jesus. He didn't have faith in that authoritative revelation founding God's Word to lean on in the midst of the dissatisfying and broken and nuanced moments of life in this broken world. But friends, the fact is, is that the Bible tells us that Jesus came into this broken, nuanced, unsatisfying world and he took on the betrayal, he took on the exhaustion, he took on the frustration. In the end, he died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us a concrete, rock-solid place to stand when the doubts come into our minds. When the doubts about, does God really care what I'm going through, comes into our mind. When, the, when, when all you can do is look back on your past and you, all you can do is remember the pain. When you have those moments... Jeremiah and the rest of the Old Testament prophets, they ex exemplify for you what your reaction should be. 
I call to my mind the steadfast love of the Lord and the fact that His mercies are new every morning. I, I guarantee that every one of you have experienced that reality in your life, not just at a spiritual level, but at a very practical level. Uh, those of you who've had kids, you've had days with your kids where you can't get them to bed quick enough, right? It's like, I love you, but you got to get out of here. I, you, I want you to go to sleep because I've got to rest my mind from the from the 40 million questions you've asked me today or from the, the quarrels that you've had with your, with your sibling today. I, not, I, I love you, but, but I'm really struggling to love you right now. You know, it's kind of that thing. We don't want to admit it. We feel kind of bad for saying that. But what happens the next morning? They come to you, even if they wake you up out of a deep sleep, they come to you, maybe they get right in your face, you know, like kids tend to do, or they pile drive you, I mean, whatever, you know, jump on you. Or you just hear their voice. And it's like, last night just went away. So you're kids. You love them, right? Friends, this is what God has done for us in Christ. This is the kind of relationship we have with our Father. And this is the foundation of our hope. And this is what we should call to mind. What will you be certain of is the question of the day. What will you call to mind? What will bring you hope? How has your inner conversation even gone this week? How did you handle the last unexpected thing that happened? How are you handling the brokenness around you? Maybe in, in your own life, your own family, your own relationships, your own workplace, your own school. How are you, how are you uh, conducting that internal conversation? Are you standing firm on the Word of God? Or are you just being tossed about in the storms of this life. So my, my homework for you this week that I want to give you is to go and to do one of two things. Some of you are in a season of darkness and, and you feel like you can't see anything around you. There's no light around you. And what God calls us to do in those moments of our life is God calls us to fill our mind with the Word of God. And in fact, if you have your bulletin, I want you to take your bulletin, Zach, I left mine down there. Take your bulletin, and uh, this is what we call the providence of God right here, because uh, uh, this is what we call the providence of God right here. Um, we talked about that the Bible teaches us how to talk to ourselves. Look at the front inside page and look at our memory verse for the week, Psalm 4211. What's the psalmist doing? Exactly what we've been talking about today. I love how God does this. And so this is our memory verse for the week. And so you can immediately put in to practice this reality. You can either store this in your mind for a, a later time of biblical lament, or you can take it and apply it to where you are right at this very moment. Psalm 42, 11, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is testifying to his own soul about the character of God. So what I'm telling you is not anything new. This is how we have learned that the Old Testament prophets and the people of Israel dealt with these very emotionally tragic times. And, and we have times like that. We have times that define us, that it takes us years to, to, to grow through because you never really get over them. But the way that you poise that foot with, of doubt to take a step forward towards belief is by putting the Word of God in your mind, 
of calling the faithfulness of God to your mind. Uh, even, even taking the hymn that, this, uh, that, that, was, that was brought about by the person who uh, wrote the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, meditating on Lamentations chapter 3, even taking that hymn and singing it. I told a lady this at the gas station the other day. She was singing. I said, you know, singing makes you, makes you more joyful. And she said, I, I know. She said, I, I've got to sing to be happy. And I said, you know, that's what I tell everybody. If you'll sing in the shower in the morning a song like Great Is Thy Faithfulness or a song like This Is Amazing Grace or any, you know, anything that we sing on a Sunday, just take that with you throughout the week and you sing it to the Lord each day. What are you doing? You're doing Lamentations 3. You're calling to mind the mercies of God. And in that way, you're, you are directing the conversation, which is what we have to do. And so shout, moan, wail, lament, and then call to mind what Jesus has done to bring you into the presence of your Father who loves you. And so that's the invitation this morning, is that first of all, if you don't have this hope in Christ, if you've never put your faith in Christ, and you can't claim the faithfulness of God on your behalf, and today is the day that you can, you can get that settled as you profess Christ and you come to Him and you begin the walk of discipleship, the path of life that God has laid out for us. Maybe you're in that dark season and you need somebody to pray for you. I'd love to be that person or I'd love for you to take the hand of a brother or sister around you and, and say, hey, I need you to pray. We've got this going on in our lives and it's, it's a really dark season. Maybe you need somebody else to, to speak the faithfulness of God over you. And somebody to keep you accountable this week, to, to text you scripture, to memorize together, Psalm 42, 11 to think about together. But one way or another, that's what this community is for. And so even if you, you don't have, you've never joined this church, you want to do that to say, you know, I want to commit to this church, church family because I recognize the need of my own life for community with other believers. And so no matter how you need to respond today, I'll be down for